in this episode with Todd Muller. You know, this is these have the, these have these challenges as well, right? The more you are put up on a pedestal by your family and friends and sense that actually you have a destiny, I think the risk of hubris becomes extreme. Uh, and so, you know, and I've navigated that myself. But I'm not deeply partisan and I'm not tribally partisan and I, and, and I see more of that actually in politics today than I did back then and certainly even in the last 10 years. And more of it is fueled, I think, by younger and younger people um, are wanting to get involved in politics who have not necessarily, uh, you know, had the life experience. That's a broad statement. Of course, there's many, many exceptions to uh, counter that view. But I think experience, lived experience, is important if you want to be a representative of a community. Um, but I guess the, one of the big lessons from those leadership roles is the power of promoting people to your management team who are better than you. And I know it's a very trite thing to say, but actually we like to think we do that, but often those words are betrayed by our actions and actually we tend to appoint people that make us comfortable, that are, reflect our personalities, reflect our capability and competencies and are essentially mirror images to an extent of ourselves, right? You know, I have been through the fire, but... Um, there's a lot to be thankful for and it has changed me as a person. I think I am more empathetic. I always thought I was empathetic, but it's like anything, right? You don't truly understand unless you've lived it. Uh, it's not a criticism. It's just um, now when you meet people that have had challenges in terms of and are having challenges in terms of mental health, there's a relatability and an understanding and a connection that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And that's a powerful thing to have that, be able to have those connections with people. And in a small way, uh, maybe, you know, assist in being someone that they feel that they can talk to about. So um, it's absolutely changed my life and um, bizarrely in a good way. Uh, and, you know, you're talking legacy, right? Um, you know, it's not for me to define it, but I suspect um, it'll be more related to this experience than any other thing that I did in the nine years that I was there. Um, and that's pretty powerful.
Todd, thank you for being here today. I appreciate you giving up some time to come and talk to us um, about your life's work. Um, and that's a nice segue into my first question. Uh, how would you describe what your life's work is? Yeah, I think I would uh, describe it um, very much through the lens of uh, people and uh, service and the agricultural uh, sectors. They uh, have been the real driver of um, uh, my professional career over the last um, 30 years uh, was um, a, a real fascination on agricultural exports, how that happened in this country with a real um, understandable connection with kiwifruit because that's uh, been my family's uh, history. Uh, so agriculture first, love of that, uh, then went to university, fell in love with politics, uh, and the sort of fusion of uh, uh, horticulture, uh, kiwifruit, the wider agriculture sector, um, how we make our way in the world, um, being able to connect uh, growers in particular with the challenges uh, and opportunities that exist offshore with their particular product, uh, and over time that uh, widening to uh, be having a political career. Uh, but sort of the connection with people and uh, trying to assist their understanding of uh, their purpose um, has been a big part of my uh, life's work. Fantastic. Thanks for that. My next line of questioning is going to go back to your childhood. You mentioned that mm. horticulture has been a big part of your family's history. So can you talk to us a bit about your childhood, growing up um, and your family unit, what that was like, and, and, you know, what was Todd like as a, as a young fellow, character-wise? You know, what were you about back then? Well, I'll start with uh, the family. Um, so I'm the eldest of four boys. Um, my um, mum was the only child of um, Henry and Eileen Skidmore, who were mayor and mayoress of Te Araha, lived in Te Araha for most of their life. Uh, the reason I uh, mention them is they have a huge impact uh, on me as I uh, grew up. Uh, I can't recall uh, my father's parents. Uh, his mother died when he was young, when he was about 18, and his father died when I was five. Uh, so um, my mum and dad were uh, dairy farmers, uh, firstly in Alsto, just out of Te Araha. Then they went to my grandfather's farm up in Pukekohe, or uh, uh, Drury, just uh, south of Pukekohe. Uh, and that's my first childhood memories, is uh, being on that farm. I can remember being in a vanguard ute with Dad, uh, like it was yesterday. I can, um, It broke down at the back of the farm, and he put me uh, on, a, on a pillow or a cushion that he found from somewhere, and I just had to keep the car or the ute straight as he uh, towed it back up the farm and up the road. I mean, you, the idea of doing that in 2023 just seems extraordinary, but I know it does happen in rural New Zealand. But I can remember that uh, like yesterday. And then when I was five, my parents decided to leave uh, Derry and they bought a Chinese gooseberry orchard in Tipuna, uh, uh, just uh, um, you know north of here. And that has been my childhood um, home. In fact, mum's just sold it and moved into Bethlehem. So we had it for 50 years. Uh, and so kiwi fruit uh, and my parents' role in growing it, um, uh, p 
packing it. We had a little cool store, a pack house, sorry, and eventually a larger pack house and cool store in Apita. Uh, that that was my life uh, growing up. My father was very much in the service side of the industry. He was the first uh, to uh, create a calibrated uh, spraying business. So as kiwifruit took off in the 70s and early 80s, he provided spraying services. Uh, you know, that's how I got my way through university was spraying kiwifruit. So kiwifruit uh, and living on that orchard um, was a massive part of my life. And then every, um, you know, frankly, every second weekend, we'd drive over to Te Araha to see my grandparents. Uh, and as you can imagine, they had their one daughter who produced four sons, and we were the complete apple of their eye, right? And so um, we were treated like kings when we went to Te Araha. Uh, and I'm sure that rubbed off on our personalities. But in terms of what I was like, um, very talkative, um, uh, quite shy, um, out of the home, but in our home and our orchard and in our family base uh, was very talkative, um, uh, probably quite bossy if you ask my three younger brothers. Uh, and um, even from an early age had an absolute fascination in reading and history. Uh, but very much, um, you know, I was at my best when I was at home, uh, quite a homeboy, didn't particularly like being out of um, uh, home, you know, didn't particularly enjoy doing things that weren't uh, within my uh, comfort zone. I just loved being at home. Uh, and of course, being the boss meant that we could play rugby how I wanted it, which largely meant we won, play cricket how I wanted it, which largely meant we won. So why would you want to leave um, uh, Tipuna and an orchard uh, and a great big uh, playing area out the front when you could always win in every game? It was great fun. Yeah. 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 So when you, when you talked there about being shy and a, and a homeboy, mm. um, you know, what what were you what were you like at, at school for instance you know what's how did that pan out for you at school um I had a couple of close friends uh, one of whom I'm still very close with he was my best man at my wedding so you know I love that about life how you know Hamish turned up I think when I was 10 and we're still very close 43 years later um, I I was talkative um, certainly quite talkative at school but you know quite um, quite tentative would be the word that I would, you know, I wasn't particularly sporty and still aren't. Uh, and so whenever there was something new, uh, I would I would rather not put myself forward. I was quite tentative and uh, shy socially. Um, and, um, you know, certainly, and, and certainly not um, confident in, you know, as you, you see these kids uh, nowadays and they just, blow my mind frankly how articulate they are right mm -hmm. you put a you they can stand up in front of their uh, classroom and even at a young age they're learning their uh, they'll be able to do a mickey they can stand up and get a little speech well that would have terrified me I, I the ability to stand up and uh, speak was not something that came to me until I was much older uh, that time in my life you would never have imagined that I would you know could evolve into somebody that perhaps have a leadership role in anything I was really tentative, uh, shy, a um, little bit talkative, um, but uh, you know, not someone that would stand out. Mm. It's interesting, like you say about about the sort of um, leadership side of things, because I think we automatically assume, don't we, that the leaders are 
the, the, the biggest, born. the biggest, loudest. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's not necessarily the case. And as I think Jim Collins wrote in his book, "Good to Great," that some of the better leaders are actually the quiet ones and the more sort of retiring from the from the front side of things. I look, I strongly agree with that. I think uh, leadership generally. Um, I think we have a we have a predetermined view in our heads as to what leadership looks like, uh, and you know, leadership is the boss, leadership is the loudest. Um, you know, obviously in a political context, uh, leadership is the most adept at articulating a particular political view or criticizing it. Uh, if you're in opposition, uh, and so um, the idea of a servant leader or someone that uh, is a reflective and thoughtful leader. People, you know, that's not a natural um, uh, combination for people. It's not a natural instinct. Um, uh, and I, I like the fact that people are starting to reassess some of that uh, sort of historical narrative, frankly, because I think, you know, ultimately we're all leaders in a sense because we can control the most important person, which is ourselves. And I think we can... Um, you know, we can grow, definitely, we all grow um, in, in our own understanding of our own capacity and how best to drive that, and that is, by definition, leadership. Uh, and then it's, it's, then it's how you, you know, interconnect in a, in a positive way with you know, others uh, in your either personal home environment or your professional environment. And so I think we all have leadership capacity uh, and leadership credentials and leadership contribution. It's just in, uh, understandably, in modern uh, business and society, there is a hierarchy that, that you know, defaults to, um, uh, you know, different styles of, uh, you know, leadership. And, uh, you know, I've of often reflected on that because I can visually see myself uh, as a young fella. And uh, certainly when I was at uh, primary school and not really until secondary school, um, did I ever imagine myself as being someone that could be a leader? That did change, changed in my early teens uh, when uh, I had this um, overwhelming sense that I was going to be um, a politician and a leader one day. And, you know, that's been a big part of uh, my um, mm. uh, trajectory ever since. So I, I'm Liking where this is going on the leadership side of things, and we'll continue with that if we if, if we can. I also I think I saw um, an interview where you once said that as a young fellow you wanted to be the prime minister of the United States, president. Well, president, sorry, president. Yeah, president. <laughs> yeah. Um, where, did, where, did, where did that come from? Because you, so, you said you didn't really have leadership aspirations no, until a bit later, but you know, obviously as a child, you you fancied that job. Well, you see, this is exactly. Um, so if you had seen me, you would have seen a quiet, shy, bubbly at home, uh, quiet, um, the, you know, home game pretty raucous, away game, you know, pretty uh, quiet, right? Uh, one day a travelling salesman comes knocking on the door. Uh, Mum and Dad uh, get convinced to buy the 1979 version of the um, World Book Encyclopedias. Uh, you know, pre-Google. It was the only way you could get access to information was get going to a library and getting the book out or getting an encyclopedia type series. My parents bought the world book ones were for quite a significant it used 
basically mum said it used up all her housekeeping money. Uh, so, you know, in today's money, it was probably thousands of dollars, right? Uh, and I fell in love with these. Um, and so much so that uh, mum, as she's moved from Tipuna into Bethlehem, has suggested that I have them and they now sit in my bookcase. Um, and uh, leather bound, um, and of course, everything that you could think of was you know, in these encyclopedias, including remarkable profiles on the presidents of the United States, their pictures, their signatures, those who preceded them, little caricatures, two caricatures of those who uh, uh, succeeded them, uh, and then their life story. And I read these. Uh, I just became absolutely passionate, borderline obsessed, uh, with uh, these profiles of the American presidents that were in the American World Book Encyclopedia. I uh, drew pictures of them. I copied their signatures. Uh, and then by about the age of 11, I think, I decided to write a story as to what my life would be in the future. We've still got it. It's about, I sort of ran out of puff after three pages. But it's not bad <laughs> as an 11-year-old. But you can't fault the imagination or the ambition because I went to America when I was about 19, as I imagined, became very successful in American politics to the extent that I became vice president by the age of 28. Uh, which is a constitutional uh, impediment that um, I hadn't quite got my head around, but putting that aside. Uh, and then, of course, as you would expect um, with a young fella, uh, the president was something terrible befelled him. Uh, and I became president and then went on to serve 13 consecutive terms, which is constitutional <laughs> impediment number two. Uh, but um, So I have this um, book at home, or these falling apart sheets of paper now, which has got a, a self-portrait, um, uh, on the front, and the heading is The Life and Times of Todd Muller, President of the United States, 2001 to 2053. You're like, that's, a, that's, a, that's an effort. Yeah. Uh, and I just loved imagining what that would look like. And so American politics, uh, I just absolutely fell in love with. And so you have this sort of um, a dichotomy with, uh, you know, this private um, passion uh, and then as Hamish, my best mate, said, you have, you know, in, in the fourth form or fifth form, you had to do speech competitions and you did a speech on mice. And he said, you're, it was autobiographical. You're up there shaking and, you know, uh, seriously, I couldn't speak. I had no self-confidence. Um, I don't know what happened between the fifth form and the sixth form, but um, it's, you know, it, it started to change. And then by the end of the seventh form, year 13, I came second in the speech competition. Uh, for the you know the seventh form, but by then I had a real sense that you know I absolutely knew that one day I wanted to be a politician, uh, and certainly if I could prime minister, I'd moved from president to prime minister by the time I was about fifteen, uh, and thought, yep, one day I'm going to do this, and um, it has been my north star as a profession and as a career ever since. Michelle says, and she recalls that on our first date, after I'd skipped through the sort of um, uh, preliminary, who are your parents, who are your brothers, sisters, you know, you know, what's your history, uh, then back to me, I want to be a politician. You know? uh, <laughs> and I can't quite recall it like that. I thought there was slightly more romance in the engagement. <laughs> Uh, but uh, she's adamant that I was very quick to point out that that was a career trajectory that uh, sat in front of me. 
which as an aside, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, is is a very interesting place for me to be now at 54, um, deciding to step away and now needing to find another North Star. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a very um, exciting but challenging process that I'm in the middle of at the moment. But certainly back then, I was going to be a politician. Even though if you'd looked at me and seen me in action, you would have thought the guy's dreaming. Yeah, it's interesting, eh? So that was, was that the power of the influence of those encyclopedias? Those oh, absolutely, yeah. So there's a couple of things. There's the power of the encyclopedias. Uh, and my grandparents who were mayor, who they had retired now from being mayor and mayoress, but I loved them deeply. I was their eldest grandson. I had a, they were very blessed to have a pretty long life. My granddad lived to 90, my grandmother to 87. That essentially took me through to my 30s. So when I was you know, in my teens and then when I went to university at Waikato, I'd go to their place to study. Uh, and so what I saw was a couple that lived a relatively simple life, but a hugely uh, fulfilled life uh, based on decades of service. Like everybody knew them. They knew everybody. They had done so much for that community, both of them separately honoured with Queen's Birthday uh, honours over time uh, for their service in Te Araha. And I could see that they had lived a life of huge meaning. They might not have had hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, but in terms of life experience and connections with people and affection for and from people, uh, their cup was overflowing. And I was deeply touched by that. And so I think that the service ethos came from them. I think also my late uh, father, both my parents, but my late father had a deep, quiet, humble philosophy around service. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you, are the, you are a child of your experience. Uh, you know, obviously, you, you bring your own, um, your own uh, life work to that but you are impacted by your lived experience and I was surrounded by uh, service and service seen as valuable uh, but also humble service particularly in the context of my granddad and my father uh, so I think you sort of put that as a grounding plus um, a love of politics and I thought you know one day I really would love to do that couldn't imagine how that would come to be or come to pass, but I just knew it was going to happen. Yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, We've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz.
I mean, it's 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 great to have that kind of um, vision, if you like, or ambition at that age, and know exactly what it is you you want to do. I mean, I I, I can relate to that since the age of six. I wanted to be well. I wanted to be Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so you wanted to be the president. I wanted to be Sherlock Holmes. The next best thing was join the police, and so I, you know, I basically I did that. I, I saw that through. Um, but for me, looking back, it, it was great to have some some clarity about what I wanted. And just be aiming for that, and everything kind of aligns with it. Yeah, it's it's quite important, I think. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, so you know, that stage though, you what would you have known really about other than local politics and seeing your grandparents involved in that? Yeah, what did you know about politics actually before you got into it? And I'm, I'm asking this question because I kind of toyed with the idea at one point of getting into politics, but didn't know anything about it. Um, so, I, so I went through a bit of a process and found out a lot more about it, and and actually was glad that I didn't go down that <laughs> that path. But I could I could see that you know a lot of people and I've, I've been writing about this uh, lately as well that you know sometimes you know if we buy a new house or we buy a car we get, we check it out first we get a feel for it, but we don't always you know with a career or a job we don't get to check that out. Um, no, we we just end up in it. We think yes. that's what we want, and then we end up in it. Yes, you know. So what what was your looking back? What did you know about politics and, and was it what you thought it was going to be um, when, you, when you actually got there? Look, I had no idea about politics in a New Zealand context. Uh, I, uh, I knew more about American politics than I did about uh, New Zealand politics. Uh, it, was, it was a funny thing, really, because I just had this deep sense that it was going to happen. Um, and I'd had that in my life before. I was watching um, the at the senior prize giving as a fifth former. Uh, I watched one of the seventh formers give the speech, the farewell speech from the class of 1984 uh, to the school. And the moment the guy stood up and spoke, I felt this this like prickling sensation down the back of my neck and I said, I'm going to do that in two years' time. Now, I seriously could not stand in front of my class at 15 and give a speech, but I absolutely had the sense that that's what I was going to do in two years' time. I had no idea how. I didn't then set about making that happen. I just had the sense that it was going to happen. Two years later, principal said, Todd, you're doing that speech. Never asked for it, never lobbied for it. It just happened, right? Uh, and so I had this huge sense of um, destiny, right? Now, that was fueled by my grandparents' utter devotion to me and sense that I was special. And so, um, you know, this is these have the, these have these challenges as well, right? The more you are put up on a pedestal by your family and friends and sense that actually you have a destiny, I think the risk of hubris becomes extreme. Uh, and so, you know, and I've navigated that myself. And so, but at that time of my life, I was absolutely sure uh, that I was going to be a politician. Now, to your question, I didn't know how, I didn't know what being a politician meant. I just knew it in my gut that that's what was going to happen. And so, you know, you go to university. 
I did um, uh, management and economics, failed management. Um, you know, thankfully didn't matter with Zespri and Fonterra further down the track, but failed management, didn't like it, just got across the line in uh, economics, didn't feel actually that I had much of a future uh, at um, university. A good friend of mine said, you should go to this US foreign policy uh, 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 paper. It's fantastic. Well, I went in there and I was at, in heaven, right? Because this was United States foreign policy as directed by the president of the time or in history, uh, and they had interaction with the Russians, the Soviet Union, side of China policy, uh, Soviet Union foreign policy, US foreign policy, you know, did remarkably well, and that became a master's in social science uh, with a focus on political studies. Um, the politics started uh, in the National Party when I saw a sign, um, uh, a little notice board, uh, in February 1989, which said, um, all welcome to the Silverdale branch of the Waikato Electric National Party. So I turned up to that, uh, sat at the back, uh, obviously was the only young guy there, got asked to come to the front, uh, and then a whole lot of serendipitous things happened all at once that just kept happening for the next 30 years. Uh, and the first was the uh, I made a connection, really deep connection with the electorate chairman of the time. Because I was, a young, I was young, the National Party, you know, was, had a lot of retired people sitting in that branch. They wanted to have somebody young. It was great. Someone from the next generation is interested in politics. They invited me to the electorate AGM. I turned up to that. I was then invited to say a few words. They then said, why don't you become part of the executive? Why don't you be our young Nat? So that's what happened. They said, why don't you come down to the uh, national conference in 1989? That's what happened. It was in Dunedin. That's where I got to meet uh, Winston Peters for the first time, my local MP. Uh, Ruth Richardson, met Jim Bolger. Um, I met Sir Robert Muldoon. Uh, that was the first national conference I have been to, what is it, 35 since? 30 since. Um, and... Um, Kept doing that, so I became involved in the Young Nats. Then I became student president. I desperately, I absolutely imagined myself being the student president. No one had been a student president uh, from uh, a Young Nat, right? You don't get, Young Nats don't get elected student presidents. Well, they did in 1991 because there were four Labour Party people or left of centre people stood against me because I was so horrified that a Young Nat was standing. They split the vote and I won. Uh, and so, and on it went. And so at the end of being a student president, I then um, uh, got a job in the National Party as a, as a regional. Uh, the, the only time they did this was the 1993 election where they put regional offices uh, that looked after a particular region, which meant that I went round the central North Island region uh, providing support and advice for the National Party MPs trying to get re-elected. So that threw me in at the very young age of like 21, uh, 22, 23, around there, in, in the mechanics of running campaigns and how to win them, what to do to try to not to lose them, although we got swept away in most cases because of the swing against the national government in that year. It was remarkable. So I connected with hundreds of people, uh, including my predecessor in this job, Tony Ryle, who was a remarkable politician, uh, and 
And then from there, found myself down in Wellington uh, in 1994. Uh, and my job was to be the secretary for the party committee that worked out how to deal with MMP because we just had the MMP by, um, um, referendum. All our rules had to change. And I was the party person that coordinated that from a, a logist operation support perspective. Remarkable experience. And by November 1994, was in the private office of Jim Bolger, the then Prime Minister. Serendipity. And so then... I had three years travelling around the country, working for him, putting together events every weekend, travelling with him, meeting uh, every people from all walks of life, from marais to schools to hospitals to businesses, from Kaikoui to Stewart Island, for three years, every weekend, travelling with the Prime Minister. Absolutely extraordinary experience. Um, and so by then... I was absolutely sure that this was going to come to pass, that I was going to be a Member of Parliament. And the question now was when, not if. And then the big decision was to pull out of the political process, the overt, determined political process, and go and do some something else for a while. And why was that? What was the... I just had a deep... I, I had a deep sense that if you, if you just kept going in that process, you find yourself an MP by the time you're 30 and you haven't done anything. Um, you haven't, you have done politics. You have done the process of politics, um, the, the sort of the framework of politics. But politics is more than process. Politics is a whole lot more than knowing how to get yourself nominated and get yourself elected and sitting in a caucus. Politics is representing a community. It is understanding people and understanding the diversity of experience, lived experience that is in your community and giving effect and a voice to it. Um, that's my view of politics. Other people hold a view that politics is partisan, it's ideological, it is your side that must be in ascendancy um, because only when you're in government can true uh, progress be made. Uh, of course I'm a National Party person. I think when National is in government, we do better than when Labor's in government. But I'm not deeply partisan, and I'm not tribally partisan, and I, and, and I see more of that actually in politics today than I did back then, and certainly even in the last 10 years. And more of it is fueled, I think, by younger and younger people um, are wanting to get involved in politics who have not necessarily uh, you know, had the life experience. That's a broad statement. Of course, there's many, many exceptions to uh, counter that view. But I think experience, lived experience, is important if you want to be a representative of a community. I agree. I agree. Did you get advice about that at that age? When no. You, or is that a realisation you had yourself? Instinct, really. Yeah. Um, and I thought, look, I'm just too, uh, I'm just too fresh behind the ears here. Uh, you know. And people say, people... People are very, um, you know, I've been hugely supported by the National Party of the people, the members of the National Party. And they see, and you do, you see, and I see it now, it's 54, I see it coming in the next generation of absolutely, you know, very talented people that you think, oh, you should be an MP one day. Um, and uh, the risk is that you want to you wanna get in now. Um, and I think my personal view is that it's better to, you know, live a bit first. And um, that certainly was the right thing to do for me. 
appreciate that others have a different different approach. Uh, I'm not going to you know lecture them. They can they make their own calls. But for me, just spending a bit of time, quite a bit of time, 15 years actually, out of the cauldron of politics, and actually be in a different world is helpful. Yeah. So okay, well, if we could talk a bit a little bit about that then. You know your career prior to becoming an MP. Uh, but my question uh, that's in my mind at the minute is, for someone who was so passionate about politics and had been since a young child, I, I get and completely agree with, you know, stepping away and getting world, worldly experience. I was told the same before I joined the police, actually, just, you know, learn a bit about life before you get um, too involved in it. And it was good advice. Um, but, you know, you, you spent 15 years away. Did, was that intentional? I mean, you obviously had the intention to learn a little bit more about the world, but, you know, stepping away from what, what had been your driver for, for most of your life to that point, was, was that intentional and how did that, how did that feel? Yeah, I think um, I'll put you slightly crooked there. Um, I didn't step away from politics uh, per se. What I did is stepped away from, this, from the um, active decision to be an MP. Okay, so I stayed involved in the National Party. So, so I, I went overseas for a year. I came back. I moved home here to Tauranga. I was very lucky to get a job with Zespri, hmm. uh, that I then had for you know eight years doing all sorts of different stuff there. Uh, and whilst I was there, in my private time, I helped the Tauranga electorate because the National Party here had been gutted by Winston Peters pulling out of the National Party and setting up his own party. So we had a very broken National Party here, uh, and I spent my time helping the National Party as a member on the committee. I was Catherine O'Regan's campaign chair in '99. Uh, helped out in '02. Um, did I was you know on the list ranking committee for the party in '99, '02, and '05. So I don't want to give you the sense, and I did earlier, that I stepped away from all things politics. Mm. Not at all. I stayed very deeply plugged into the to the volunteer side of the National Party. But what I decided not to, what I decided to do was not put myself forward as a young candidate when opportunities came up in 99 and 02 and uh, but to stay working. And the opportunities kept coming up. Like in 08, uh, and Simon write, raises it in his book, he and I were on the same committee in Tauranga supporting Bob Clarkson, right? Mm. Uh, and we all thought Bob was going to stand again, and he didn't. And so everyone would have thought it would have been Simon versus me for that nomination. But I had just started at Apita as a chief executive. So he says in his book, I was the first person he rang to see you know, who the competition was going to be. And um, I said, no, it's all yours, mate. And I backed him. I was uh, a delegate, and he got my vote uh, as the candidate for national, and you know, he built a fantastic career subsequently. Um, and then in 2011, the opportunity presented itself in Coromandel, but I'd just started at Fonterra. Uh, and I said, no, I can't do that. Um, so I then assumed I was going to be at Fonterra. For, it was a senior role there for quite a few years. And then Tony Ryle, after already renominating, decided to step down, like what I did. Uh, and suddenly there was an opportunity. And as Michelle said, well... Um, slightly more vernacular that I'm going to share it. I think it's time you either put your hand up for this or stop talking about it. <laughs> uh, and um, so I did. 
it's funny. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I've heard that a few times from different guests. So it's, uh, it's the partners who say, you know, put up or shut up. Basically. Yeah, pretty much. You know, <laughs> and um, you know that. I mean, she's been a remarkable support through it all. Yeah. So your your roles at Zespri and on Fonterra, can we just touch on those for yeah. a bit? Um, so you know, tell us a little bit about that. The, the, you had kind of leadership roles, yes. I believe. There. Yep. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your work experience there as, as a leader in those, you know, similar, you know large organisations. Huge. Yeah, they're great, great jobs. Um, so I started at Zespri. Actually, I started in the um, what was called Kiwi Fruit New Zealand, which was the um, or essentially the um, the parent body, if you like, of Zespri. Zespri was a, a relatively small, brand new marketing company that was a subsidiary of KiwiFruit New Zealand. KiwiFruit New Zealand held all the sort of regulatory um, roles. Uh, and my job was to project manage a process of corporatisation, which essentially meant the merging of KiwiFruit New Zealand and Zespri into a new corporate structure. Uh, and through that, um, having a complete rewrite of the regulations and uh, principal legislation that underpins the KiwiFruit industry. Uh, so I had no idea about that. I mean, I can sound like I know what I'm talking about now, reflecting back on it. Uh, but at the time when I got that job, I was I re I didn't I didn't even know what corporatization meant. Um, I got the job I think because the Zespri leadership saw in me the ability to relate to people, and particularly to relate to politicians and the regulators, which had been the world that I'd come from when I was in Jim Bolger's uh, uh, private office. And so that was a huge learning curve for me. And it was a fantastic experience realising that you can you can take over, a you can have a job where you feel, frankly, um, the scope that is being asked of you here is you know, a little bit beyond my understanding. But actually with application, you can, and, and the ability to listen and surround yourself with better people and not be threatened by the fact that there are people around you that are better uh, technically uh, on the subject than you are and see it as a remarkable resource to enable you to do your job. And I got taught that really through that process. So every other role that I have been in, and they, and I got promoted to various roles within Zespri, all, all roles back in Zespri related to corporate services in a traditional context. So I looked at my team looked after uh, growers, the services that Zespri gave growers, uh, the innovation uh, function, the communication function, the government relations function. And so I had that at Zespri for a number of years. Uh, I then left that and became chief executive of Apita. Apita is a kiwifruit packhouse and uh, a cool store, um, large uh, organisation based north of here. Uh, my parents were one of those, the initial shareholders way back in 1985. So I was a chief executive of that for four years and then left that to go to Fonterra. Um, and again in Fonterra, similar roles in terms of overseeing um, uh, the farmer interface uh, and the um, CSR, you know, community investment, social investment interface, uh, and of course the government interface, which in Fonterra was huge. Mm. So I didn't start in that job. I arrived there and after you know a period of time, was had the good fortune of being promoted into the senior management team and had a budget of cost centre, I was reminded, of 85 million and uh, 250 staff. So it was big. 
Um, so I've always had jobs where I um, were, was accountable for the relationship between the company and its key uh, growers and suppliers, and particularly the regulatory and political interface, because that's, that's a world that increasingly I understood and knew how to navigate. Um, but I guess the, one of the big lessons from those leadership roles is the power of promoting people to your management team who are better than you. And I know it's a very trite thing to say, but actually we like to think we do that, but often those words are betrayed by our actions and actually we tend to appoint people that make us comfortable, that are, reflect our personalities, reflect our capability and competencies and are essentially mirror images to an extent of ourselves, right? Um, we're actually, I, I determinedly... Um, with support of very good HR people, to be said, um, ensured that the teams that I had around me were uh, uncomfortable for me. They were ambitious, they were smart, they were technically astute, they challenged my management style, they made me work as a leader, uh, and I got a hell of a lot out of that because they forced me to be better at what I'm doing. Much Far more uncomfortable, uh, to be a manager of a team like that where you're, you know, trying to keep up, frankly. Mm. Um, but I got a lot out of that. So where did you kind of, or, or was it a part of, you know, sort of con consequential, but, you know, did you learn uh, from others that that was a leadership style that worked or, or did it just kind of evolve? I think it sort of evolved. Um, I, think, I think that did evolve. I think one of the best things that Fonterra did um, for me, was their induction was fantastic. So when I arrived um, into a sort of a middle mid-level job, it was uh, essentially accountable for Fonterra's strategic relationships and local government and iwi with a focus of South Island and Taranaki. I shared it with somebody else who had the rest of the country. Um, we had um, support given to us to do a 100-day plan or a 90 I think it was a 90-day plan from memory. Um, and that I, I got so much value out of that that I went back to HR and said, look, could I could this could we continue with the support? And again, it's you know, I've got a big conscious here that this is Fonterra, the biggest company in New Zealand, massive um, resources put behind their people, and that is not an SME lived experience. Far from it, you've got to do everything yourself. Uh, but I so I appreciate that. You know, I was very lucky in terms of the roles that I had and the support that I had. But that advice where somebody sat beside you and actually assisted you in being real clear around what your 90-day plan was, what, you know, broken down by weeks and months to get yourself up to speed in terms of who are your key stakeholders, who do you need to, uh, you know, what elements of the role are you unsure about and how do you fix that? So you don't sit there saying, well, you know, I know I'm really good at this, so I'm just going to focus on this and show everyone I can do this bit. But being very mindful about saying and, and honest with yourself that actually saying these elements of the role scare the hell out of me. I don't really know what, what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, that's on the table. What do we do to fix that? And you're back here in two weeks. We've agreed what you've got to do. When we're back here in two weeks, then you get telling me what you have done to fill those gaps. Well, it's a it's a tremendous resource to wrap around someone who's starting at a you know leadership role, uh, and of course 
I kept that up because I could, because it was Fonterra, all through the roles that I then got given. Because within 10 months of starting, I was reporting to the chief executive on the Fonterra leadership team. So it was one hell of a, a jump up to um, uh, the leadership team. And so I kept having this guy beside me, helping me through that. Um, and it was, it was a tough time, right? Because, um, you know, there was a whole lot of internal uh, restructuring going on. We then got hit by food safety scares, the biggest one being a false botulism. I mean, it was just, it was hideous in terms of some of the issues we had to manage. Um, you know, but without jumping ahead, this is part of the, you know, challenge for me over the last three years is despite being in that environment, in Fonterra, uh, with all that pressure, great people around me, but, you know, a $5 billion market closed on us and you're with the chairman every day and Stephen Joyce, as it was from the government side, working out what the strategy was to get it reopened. Like this was very intense stress uh, moments. I still slept. I had no issues and no portent of what was coming round the corner, uh, you know, a few years later when I became the leader of the National Party. So um, it was, that was a tremendous job. And I would not have left Fonterra unless the opportunity to be the MP for my home city uh, um, appeared, but it did not expect it. And so, you know, the opportunity presented itself. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's good. We might make some connections back to what you've just been saying there um, about that, that pressure and stuff as we as we go through your political career. So 2014, am I yeah. right? Is that when you started and when you got elected yeah. as MP for Bay of Plenty? Yeah. So uh, how that works is uh, first you've got to be nominated by the party as your candidate. Uh, so Tony Ryle stepped down, said he looked he wasn't going to stand again after all. Uh, and uh, so I put my name forward and ran a process and on June the 3rd, 2014, got the support of the local National Party people and just basically hit the ground running. I knocked on 12,000 doors um, uh, and introduced myself as, um, you know, the National Party candidate and look, we did very well. We got a massive party vote um, and, you know, got a huge um, support locally uh, and then, uh, but I acknowledge that that support came from the fact that, and you must always never forget this in politics, it was the people that got you there uh, in terms of the National Party people. And uh, I was there, I got elected because I was a National Party, right? And so John Key said to me right at this sort of start, um, both Michelle and I, sort of advice was, um, first three years, work your ass off locally. People, and like everything in life, you know, there's first impressions, right? Uh, so there's this new person who's become elected. Who is he? Oh, some national guy's got re-elected or been elected. What's he like? Mm. It's a blank canvas, and you have to make sure that that you know that the people in your community of Papama and Mangatapu and Tapuna and Kaimai, when they have that conversation, oh, what's that new guy? What's what's that new guy like? That people say, oh, he's a pretty hard worker, from what I can see. Because people make a decision about you. They decide that you are either someone who's got their interests at heart and uh, work hard, and then once that's locked in, that's what they think about you. Yeah. Um, and frankly, that's no different. It, whatever the career, mm -hmm. whatever professional role you choose, yeah. that's, that, that applies. 
and but I think it particularly applies uh, to get to um, to politics. So I just really worked hard uh, locally and absolutely loved it because the, these are my people, right? This is this is my city. We moved here in 1974 when there were 27,000 people. Yeah. There was no Papamoa. Well, there was actually <laughs> one street. Uh, and, you know, now look at yeah. it. How did it feel? And, you know, obviously we've talked about your, um, you know, your, your journey from being a child wanting to get into <laughs> politics. And, right. and now you're in it, right? You, you've achieved it. You've, you've been elected and you're doing it. How did that feel? How did that feel? Was that was that a good kind of? Oh, it was an incredible experience. It was just the the sense the sense of accomplishment mm. uh, and destiny was just extraordinary, right? But as I mentioned earlier, you know, destiny and hubris are two sides of the same coin. Uh, but at that point, it was um, just a remarkable feeling. Um, I loved. Uh, Wellington, because it was familiar, right? Um, so we did the induction, which was remarkable. I didn't even know that Parliament did inductions. Mm-hmm. Certainly didn't do inductions back in the nineties. And so this was a modern Parliament, uh, and where you know you have the sort of expected support around you uh, in terms of this is your job. This is you know traditional induction. Uh, and you know I was walking around that induction and saw so many other fellow MPs arriving for the first time and they were like oh my gosh this place and I knew it right it was a familiar it was a familiar um, uh, space for me but it changed uh, certainly not as much smoking and drinking and (laughs) cavorting I think you know which is a good thing Um, but uh, you know it was it was familiar so to be there and you know and then to you know to to give your maiden speech and you have a korowai from the local Tupuna community and um, the appearance in the in the um, gallery and your family. And, you know, it's a very, very special time. And it was in a remarkable uh, government to be a part of. I was a backbencher, you know, right at the bottom of the tree. Uh, literally, the person who took the minutes, the lowest ranked person. And... Um, I put my hand up for that. There were 14 of us that came in that year and someone, they said, someone's got to have the lowest job, which is taking the minutes. And I said, well, I'll do it. It's fine. You know, you start at start the, the bottom. Uh, and, and so, you know, observing the key English government, I mean, it was a well-oiled machine, right? We were all through that period, we were, you know, that first term, um, really until Jacinda turned up, eight weeks from the 2020 election, National was miles ahead. Mm. You know, that's why they made the change in 2020 is that, um, you know, uh, Andrew Little was 15 points behind, eight weeks to go. Uh, And so, um, you know, I was part of a remarkable first-term government, uh, third-term government, just watching it. And so what do you do? You get uh, put into select committees. So you have two parts of the job. One, and I think people... uh, might be surprising for some people. It is like two jobs wrapped into one. So you do lots of hours. You've got your local job. Um, so what's the local job? Supporting communities, uh, being at events, um, you know, from school fairs to, you know, nighttime events. You've got an office where people who need assistance to navigate the, the challenges of their life through the bureaucracy of the country come for assistance, regardless of which way they vote. Uh, and my team, and I've been really blessed with fantastic people, they assist those uh, constituents with their uh, challenges. And when it's really gnarly, 
and needs a minister to perhaps have another look, I swing into action and try and assist. So you've got that element of the job, and that's continuous. Like, you know, my office is open five days a week. Uh, and then when you go down to Wellington, Tuesday to Thursday, 30 weeks of the year, it's like having another 40-hour week. You then become a legislator. As opposed to a community advocate and supporter, you then become a legislator where you're poring over law, proposed law, what should change, what shouldn't change, uh, the, the, the bare pit of parliament fighting over the direction of the country, um, and uh, hugely stimulating, hugely stimulating uh, environment. And you just get all sorts of opportunities, right? You get put on select committees, which are the committees that uh, pour over the proposed legislation that's relevant to that that portfolio, like education or foreign affairs. Or and I ended up chairing foreign affairs and defence and trade. Uh, I went to Iraq. This is all in my first term. I went to Iraq with the Minister of Defence. It, it, I went to, in 2016, I went to the two American uh, conventions, the Republican Convention and the Democratic Convention, week one week after the other. Listened to Obama, listened to Trump, uh, met Jesse Jackson. I mean, these are out there experiences, and that was just in the first term. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so remarkable job. Um, and absolutely loved it, uh, and you know had a you know very good uh, personal result here in 2017, uh, and but we lost, got more votes, but we lost, mm -hmm. and then we went into opposition, mm -hmm. uh, and then the wheels began to fall off. The party, uh, and um, you know it was a challenging time. What was it, so? What was it like? I, I mean, I can tell from your your voice and the way you're talking about it, it it's it's sort of stacked up to be what you'd maybe oh, hoped totally or, or if not surpassed that. But yes, if you think about the reasons why you wanted to get into politics and what you wanted to achieve, was was that what it what you thought? I mean, I, I'm sort of conscious of the fact that some people get into politics. The reason why I considered it was because you want to see some change, mm. and is it easy to make that change when you're in politics, or do you get you know, caught up in the machine. and Great question. Um, so there's, depends what change you seek. If you are wanting to be a, and I think all electorate MPs, regardless of persuasion, um, would have this view, I think, is being an electorate MP where you have the obligation of being an advocate for your community means that you do have the opportunity to make small changes uh, in people's lives which are profound for them. Mm. Uh, I'll just give you an example. It might be uh, someone has you know, not been appropriately supported through the health system. Uh, it might be an immigration case. Um, it always relates to services provided by the government agencies which are uh, are not due the individual. You know, it hasn't it hasn't worked for them. And your and your officer's ability to get in and through your own uh, personality, relationships, advocacy, uh, understanding of the detail, making a change for them, you do make change people's lives. Uh, and some of the, you know, there has been some incredibly emotional moments where you have changed people's lives for the better. Right, and have them in tears on the other end of the phone. 
uh, and uh, it's very um, it's a it's a privilege to be able to do that. So you are absolutely making a difference uh, at an individual family level, right? Uh, and that's a big part of being a community leader. And then you go to the Wellington side, where the change that you can uh, facilitate, by and large, only happens if you're in government, right? I have been lucky. I have had two members' bills, one a technical change to the Cooperative Companies Act and the other a bit more substantive, the change of labelling obligations on sunscreen, that got selected from the ballot, so that's completely random, and then got the opposition, which is the Labour government, to support, which is almost unheard of. So I've had two uh, successes there. Put that in context, Trevor Mallard was a politician for 32 years, never had one ballot pulled out, one bill pulled out of the ballot. So I've had two in opposition, and both of them got government support. So that was pretty cool. So, But putting that aside, um, you only get to make a change when you're the government. In terms of those broad uh, priorities, uh, policy priorities. Um, so that, I think that is, um, I mean, that's why we, that's why you go into politics. Uh, I think people go into politics, though, for different reasons. There are different emphasis on that. Some people really enjoy the community advocacy piece, uh, and other people are very ideological. They have a, a absolute view that a set of policies applied in this way will deliver this outcome for New Zealand. My experience is that the smaller parties on the more, um, uh, not extreme, but at the more sort of um, outer edges of our political system, think ACT and Greens, are more the latter. They are more parties that are very focused on individual policy prescriptions that they believe um, must be adopted by the country, and that drives them. For the Green Party, obviously a huge amount of focus on social justice uh, and environmental uh, policy. Uh, and that, to them, that is all that counts, right, is delivering on that. You look at the ACT side, it, it is a far more a liberal set of policies, which is around you know, economic, um, uh, you know, the rationalisation of the state and its involvement and of, of economic reset. Um, the two tribes of New Zealand politics, Labour and National, end up being the parties of compromise. A lot of people don't like that word. The, the flip side of compromise is pragmatism because ultimately you only get a bill passed if you've got 60 votes, right? And so that the, you've got to cut deals. You've got to work out a way that actually gets something done, even if it's not perfect. So that famous line of the, you know, uh, perfect being the enemy of good or... Um, uh, that, that just, politics is the art of the possible. Not, not necessarily what should be done based on your own political philosophy, but what is possible to be done. Uh, and it's incremental and it's, and it's um, hard yards, right? Mm. Uh, and so um, if I have a f concern around the way politics is heading is I see uh, the country generally getting more... Um, uh, divisive. I see greater anger in our community, I think, because some of the sort of truisms of life that people had become used of in terms of the ability to, you know, 
not only get a job but have a job that uh, you feel fulfilled in and you can stay in over time has been completely smashed over the last 15, 20 years. Everyone knows that they're going to have to go through many different jobs and iterations over their lives and I think that creates a sense of unease because certainty is, is there's no certainty in employment in terms of the nature of the employment. There is increasing inability for people to get housing. So those who have housing have kids that do not, and there are many in this community that can't have housing. Uh, it's simply beyond them. And you look at the, you know, the, the money, the average money that people get uh, for their work, uh, and then you look at the price of the house and you think, oh, I'm never going to get there. Uh, and that creates a sense of unease. Uh, and then um, I think you can... Um, you can't ignore the fact that you know we have had um, a massive disruption in terms of COVID, uh, and that has created a real sense of unease. So I think that's a long-winded way of saying that some of the sort of broader certainties that we had in life, that if you get a good education, uh, get a decent job, um, you'll you know settle down, buy a house, uh, maybe have some kids, uh, and, uh, you know, if you work hard, you'll be in a reasonable space. And there was a sort of certainty about that. Uh, and I feel that that is, has, is, is quite vulnerable for a lot of people today. And then you sort of lift up and see New Zealand in the context of a broader economic, a global economic environment, and it's a, you know, and a geopolitical environment, it's pretty which is pretty out there, right? You've got climate change and the uncertainty of that. You've got geopolitical tensions, uh, uh, the rise of China. Uh, you know, we're hugely dependent on China. It's a fifth of all of our uh, export income, at least. Uh, and you see all these things happening, and people are uneasy. Hmm. And I think that uneasiness uh, has turned, in some cases, to more pointed anger. Um, and you have, you know, the rise of... Um, the uh, you know Maori ambition in that context. What does that look like? Some voices suggest um, you know the treaty obligation is fifty-fifty uh, co-governance on everything. Um, clearly, that uh, is you know untenable for a lot of uh, New Zealanders. Uh, and so you've got all these layers, and then you put social media on it, hmm. where people feel able to voice their concerns in the most um, unfettered way uh, and you you know you have an environment which from my perspective is increasingly unattractive uh, politically and I think uh, increasingly fraught for New Zealand mm. that's a bit of a speech didn't quite mean to launch yeah, no, it's one good, of those. It's good. Oh, there's, there's, there's probably there's so much in there. There's too much in there for us to go through today. But <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick up on a couple of things if I can, because yes, um, you, you used the word, and I'd like to come back to you changing from the key English government and into what was the opposition. It'd be good to come back to that. But that word opposition, and just relative to what you've been talking about, the, the sort of uncertainty we've we've got globally, not just in New Zealand, mm. but if we focus on um, our our country, our economy for a minute, that kind of division that's growing and everyone can feel it, I think. Yes. Is there an element of, you know, what influence do you think does Parliament have in that? You've talked about the two main players, Labour and, and National, and 
one's in government, one's in opposition. And just the, the language and terminology that we, that we use, you, you mentioned there as well about the fact that you got support from the opposition for, your, for a bill, yeah. which was kind of unheard of. You don't, you don't often get that. No, quite rare. You know, though, with those parties, it, it seems from the outside looking in sometimes, and this is just my observation, that there's an element of opposing for opposing sake because that's what we're supposed to do. We're in opposition. Whereas actually, you know, is there an opportunity there for us to collaborate a lot more on on elements that are good for for all New Zealanders? And you know, and does that kind of two party division at a parliament level is that kind of now being reflected in the way that things are happening, or the, you know, the division we see in in the country in some way, shape, or form? Mm. I was thinking about the the leadership and in, in examples set by by politics and politicians. You know, well, if, if we're going to get change, where does that start? Well, uh, that's, there's a lot on that too. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, uh, so a few thoughts. I think, I mean, we have a constant, a, um, we don't have a constitution, but we, you know, we have a, a, a series of laws um, that create a framework in which we operate. Uh, we run a Westminster system taken from the British, so the government has the power to, um, you know, enact its policies, uh, you know, tax and spend that taxation as they see fit. And the opposition, uh, I mean, we are called His Majesty's loyal opposition. I mean, that's when we get sworn in, you're His Majesty's government and His Majesty's loyal opposition. Uh, loyal to the king, obviously, but also the job is to critique the government's um, uh, proposals. And actually, good government needs that tension. It is absolutely critical that um, government policy and uh, thinking uh, and spending uh, needs to be critiqued, uh, needs to be critiqued formally, um, you know, in the sort of legislative process that I touched on in terms of the select committee. But it also needs to be critiqued in the political theatre of the chamber or the, what people think of parliament where they see us standing up and shouting at each other. Uh, and, and, and that's a really important part. But there is something to your observation that uh, I think is, is true and is troubling me, is that over the last nine years, it feels to me that the nature of the cr criticism of governments and individuals and in governments have become more personal uh, and more toxic, not necessarily in Parliament, because we have very strict rules around what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say. You can't stand up in Parliament and say, you're a liar. You can't even say you, because you're referencing the Speaker. So you've got to say, so we've got all this these strict standing orders, they're called, rules mm. essentially around how our discourse occurs in Parliament. But that said, there's still, you know, it is, it is always going to be a, a place of fierce debate. Mm. And I think that's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with the chamber being uh, a place of fierce debate. What concerns me is the, is the broader um, avenues for political discourse beyond Parliament, which historically was just the media in terms of a journalist's interpretation of what you said and what I said 
and some hopefully balanced assessment of that debate. The media, in the traditional sense, has, is increasingly bypassed by social media, where the same protagonists, the politicians, and those who critique the, and the public critique the politicians and the journalists are on the platform of Twitter bashing the hell out of each other. And the language that's used on that is completely over the top and poisonous uh, and toxic, none of which is allowed in the debating chamber. But you can say whatever you want on social media largely, and people do. Uh, and so politicians, not all of them, I hardly ever go on Twitter, but some, some of my colleagues and the Labour Party are constantly out there promoting their view and I think fiercely and personally and in a toxic way attacking the opposition. Uh, not only politicians but also um, commentators, uh, you, know, you know, individuals who have a particular view in, on life, they're all in there, right? And the journalists are watching and, and, and you know, creating and facilitating that, fueling it. And then you've got the more um, sort of, you know, less so the Instagram and stuff, but Facebook is another platform where people, I mean, when I put stuff on Facebook, I have someone in my office that sits and moderates and takes out the stuff. Not that's critical to me per se, but the language they use is appalling. It is absolutely vicious language. They will call into, you know, they will attack me for my lack of competency. They will, they will attack me for mental health. They will, seriously. And so my office tries to hide those. So at least it's not a complete, you know. Mm -hmm. And so to your question around, you know, what's the leadership then that politicians should um, uh, show and what's the behaviour that politicians should try and model in that context is a very good one because, you know, in my view, I'd put a line through Twitter. I think it brings the worst out of worst of us uh, and doesn't necessarily show politicians in a good light because you end up just having fierce partisan conversations all the time in that. In that um, and the more fiercer those engagements are, the more edge it then brings to your uh, engagement in the chamber and in your engagement in terms of the broader select committee uh, process, which is supposed to be collaborative. How select committees work is that you've got the majority, I don't, you put this legislation on. We don't like the legislation. We're going to vote against it. But we are now going to spend the next six months listening to people's feedback on the legislation. And where we can, we'll try and find agreement on areas that could change, which still means you get your intent, but actually the legislation is better law. That's what should happen. Personally, um, you know, part of the reason that I'm stepping aside is that I, I've... I've just run out of enthusiasm for the nature of politics and the political engagement. The, probably the high point, second only to being elected the leader of the National Party, was what I did with James Shaw on the Zero Carbon Bill. Uh, we, you know, we negotiated for months to come up with a framework to deal with climate change that would be bipartisan, and we got it across the line. It was a close-run thing, but we got it across the line. Uh, and I feel very proud about that. The small part I played in, in having a piece of legislation that should be enduring that enables exactly what happened yesterday, an independent climate commission 
give advice not only to the government but to the opposition and to the country saying, we said we needed to be here, we're here, here's the gap, here's how we better fix it. By the way, these policies that the government's doing need to change. That's exactly what you want. Uh, and I feel proud about that. But those examples of bipartisanship are few and far between. Yeah. And it's, and it's leading by example, isn't it? So if you think about the, the behaviour on Twitter, for instance, right. what's that demonstrating to the rest of the population about how we, how we engage? Yeah. I, I'm reminded we had um, Angie Warren-Clark um, here a few weeks ago. Uh, great conversation. Um, but she, you know, she talked about the um, vulnerability that she feels that she's got in, in public because of the way that people are behaving towards her. And I think that's a change that we've seen yes, it is. in New Zealand over the last few years. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, been apparent for a long time overseas, but not here. Mm. So something has changed, hasn't it, over the last few years, the way that people feel towards politicians. And whether that's the general uncertainty of society these days or whether it's a reflection of politics in this country, I'm not sure which, which comes I first. I think it's, I th well, yeah, which, which does come first. Um, I mean, ultimately, politics reflects society, mm. I think. Um, now, I know that's, that's not a... That doesn't um, remove the obligation from us to show leadership in terms of behaviour and tone uh, and what we call out as acceptable and what, what we don't call out as accept and what we accept. Um, but that is... You know, it is a it is an increasingly fragmented and fraught society, and I know Ange. I think she's a she's a great person, and you know, I have enjoyed the fact that my political opponent here uh, is someone that I know well, and I would consider a friend. Actually, not a close friend, like, but we we knew each other at university. Mm. You know, um, and she's a great person, and she advocates for her values and her community well. And I see no reason why you can't have a relationship like that. You know, people will vote with who they want to vote for, but you should be able to respect somebody with a different political view mm. because it's a valid view. I don't think it's a view that um, is right for the country. I prefer national to be in power. But her view is valid and her right to hold the view is valid mm. and it's, it's appalling that she's been subjected to you know, the online abuse. But, you know, it's not just her. Um, you know, I think the way people reacted to uh, Jacinda was outrageous. Uh, you know, I thought many elements of her policy were appalling in terms of policy. But the vitriol uh, and the misogyny, just shocking. Uh, not from everybody, of course. Uh, but the problem is if the, the more this occurs, the more we become desensitised to it, the more we just accept it as just the noise of day-to-day -day life, the worse it is for the civility of politics. And that, you know, that worries me. And does it become more about, you know, my, my fear, you've got a love of American politics. I suppose when I look at that from afar, I think it's all about personalities. So, you know, I know very little about American policy, it, it tends to be based on who, who do you like, who are you going to vote for, and it's about personalities. You know, are we at risk here of, of you know, kind of policy becoming less of a, 
a factor and a feature for people to consider and more about personality types because we seem to be targeting mm. the personality of people rather than their policy, which is what you've just pointed out about with Jacinda Ardern. You know, uh, policies may have been flawed from your perspective, but, you know, that she's doing the best that she can, like you're doing the best that you can. Yeah. But we attack, we don't attack the policies, we attack the, the people. And so I, is, that, is that where we're heading? Is it become, going to become about more about personalities than policy? Well, that is where it's heading, in my view. Mm. Um, you know, we are not America, we are not Australia, uh, we're not Canada, we're not the United Kingdom, but we, uh, our traditions are more tightly aligned to that than they are of any other um, you know, jurisdiction in the world. Uh, and that's where they're going, rapidly. Uh, and you can see the same uh, elements in New Zealand politics. Now, my prediction is that this election is going to be brutal. Uh, you know, hopefully it breaks more uh, significantly to uh, national than it is at the moment. But I can see, uh, you know, the next six months being a pretty brutal arm wrestle between national labour that appear to be sort of locked in a, you know, in a sort of largely the same vote each space. Uh, you know, their respective partners, Green Act respectively, largely on the same numbers. And, you know, that's bounced around now for six months longer, and it's largely been the same. Mm. Uh, and you think, goodness me, this means we are going to have, you know, th there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. Either there's going to be an absolute call for change or an absolute let's keep it as the same, and it's going to be pretty brutal out there. And um, you can't, we must not lose the civility, right? If you get to the point where you just really dislike the person who holds the different political view than you, mm. you're in trouble. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I see it, I see it everywhere and I, and I do not see it as just a creature of the right. And I hate that. I hate the sense of hate's too strong. I dislike the fact that, you know, you see it on Twitter, um, you know, people of, of right persuasion, are, uh, you know, attack viciously the, the woke um, tendencies of the left and the left attack the right as, as sort of an incarnation of fascism. And we're using labels with all the subjective weight of history uh, in them uh, as, you know, carefree that we just throw it at each other. And I, I you know, where does that lead? Um, uh, sorry for it being in a moment of downerness no, here in this no. uh, podcast. No, I think, I think it's, it's, it's good to It worries about. me, right? Yeah. It genuinely worries, worries me, you know? And, uh, and I think most people just focusing on getting through each day and doing what they need to do to try and, you know, pay the bills and get ahead. But there's a sense of growing concern out there behind them around, you know, New Zealand today feels different to New Zealand 15 years ago mm. on a number of fronts. Yep. Uh, and that's not one government's fault, in my view. It is what it is. We are different, but I think we need to be open about the fact that we are and work out ways of actually identifying opportunities to bind us together as opposed to just heading on down this path where, um, you know, if you vote for Labour, then I can't have you around for dinner. Yeah, it seems that's the way it's heading, mm. isn't it? Mm.
which I, so I, I'm I'm pleased we're talking about it. I'd like to talk about it a lot more. I think there's so much more in here as well. But I, it'd be remiss of me to not talk about your progress through the National Party and, and yeah. leadership. And so you to take you back to the part of the conversation where you said in 2017 the wheels came off party wise. Can you can you give us a little bit of an overview of what what was happening there? You were now in opposition as opposed to coming into um, being an MP in Parliament uh, in government. Mm. Uh, it must be quite a transition to then be in opposition. Um, huge. And, and what, what was that like and what was the, the leadership change that came about? What was, what was that like for you during that period? Oh, look, I think um, it was very hard on the National Party um, and particularly the caucus, which, you know, we got 43.5% of the vote. Labour got 37. It's hard to imagine when you say that that you lose, but that's what happened. First time ever under MMP that that was the case. Uh, and quite rare, quite rare overseas. Normally if you, you know, the other MMP jurisdictions, if you got the most votes, then you are assumed to have won the election. And the minor parties then worked with you to try and progress their agenda. Obviously didn't work like that. Uh, and, um, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing... Illegitimate with the way it happened. It was totally with. It's just the way the numbers worked. You got to get to sixty. You couldn't get to sixty, um, and so you have a, a a caucus that only weeks before were cabinet ministers, senior cabinet ministers, up and coming cabinet ministers, who had the levers of power, and who frankly, only months before, assumed they were going to win in a canter. I mean, literally 10 weeks before the election, we were up by 15 points, right? Uh, and so, and we all know what happened. So that adjustment from nine years of government into opposition, and then also being opposition, the biggest opposition, we had 50, 50, oh, what is it, 58 votes or something? I mean, it, I mean Labour together got 63. Labour, Greens, and uh, uh, New Zealand First had 63 um, and uh, yeah, and we were fifty six ourselves, mm. um, and so you know you're this huge opposition party, uh, and you know that adjustment didn't work, right? And there were multiple reasons for that. Um, you know the, I think the ministers struggled to get their. Um, heads around the fact that, you know, now they were in opposition. Uh, I think those ambitious amongst us could see opportunity to uh, climb the ladder in opposition. And obviously the first big um, uh, dramatic transition was um, Bill deciding that he wasn't going to keep in charge of this. And then we have, a, a, you know, a pretty... Um, intense leadership battle, which Simon was successful in. Uh, and, you know, being the leader of the opposition is described as the worst job in the world, certainly in the country. Uh, and, you know, he he gave it everything. And, you know, actually, you know, to his credit, uh, had the party in a reasonable position going into 2020. Uh, and then COVID hit, uh, and then, you know, our vote collapsed, right? And... Um, by that stage, I had had the profile of the um, Zero Climate Bill, the climate change profile. I then got put by Simon into agriculture and had pretty strong support within that sector. Uh, and 
I was seen as an alternative to him. And so the conversations uh, began. And, um, you know, this is when ego and hubris start uh, rearing its head again uh, because, you know, I saw an opportunity where actually this could this could work in a way that I could be the leader of the National Party uh, and potentially Prime Minister at the end of 2020. And so um, it got, uh, you know, pretty tense there um, in the caucus as it became clear that uh, Simon's support was um, uh, seeding away, particularly from the broader country, um, uh, and that was impacting the national vote. Uh, and, you know, there was quite a lot of conversation within the party and outside that actually we needed to make a change, and I was the person that we needed to change too. And so that that happened in May, and um, you know it was a remarkable point, you know, to find yourself, you know, to challenge um, uh, Simon for the leadership, and and to win it, and to have caucus support to be the leader of the National Party. It was a remarkable, remarkable moment. Can I can I ask you? You, you mentioned there about conversations going on. Um, I'm, I'm interested in you know. Were you kind of shoulder tapped? I, I don't know how it works behind the scenes. So were you kind of shoulder tapped and suggested that actually, you know, support's kind of waning a little bit. We need to change. You'd you'd be you'd be a good um, option here, or was it more you're seeing an opportunity and your ambition from childhood, thinking there's an opportunity for me here. I'm going to step up. So it was it was genuinely both. Okay. And I know that uh, some listening to this uh, podcast may have a different view, but it was genuinely both. Um, you know, clear signals from a number of people internally and external that the change needed to happen and that I was the change that people wanted to back uh, and me seeing the opportunity to actually make that happen. Uh, or at least, you know, c- deeply consider whether it should happen. Now, you know, my... Um, my view is it was still a, um, uh, an open question um, right up to probably a week or so from when it happened, when you know, it became very clear that um, it really needed to be sorted one way or another. And also the, you know, the polling was uh, pretty perilous, frankly. Mm-hmm. We were heading to a massive defeat. Uh, and so um, you know, the change was, change was made. Uh, and that initial sense of elation uh, particularly on the day, was you know quite something, something I'll never, uh, you know, never forget. Uh, but as you know, as well documented, it didn't last long. No, it didn't. It didn't. But I, 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 well, we can come to that. I mean, you've, you've spoken about that quite widely, and, and you know, I, I don't, I don't want to brush over it. But I, I'd, I'd like to spend a bit more time talking about how the, how that works from a time frame point of view. You've said that you know within a couple of weeks. I can't think of any other scenario where someone might be, you know, kind of given the opportunity and steps into a major, not just a major leadership role, but it's a major public role um, with with only sort of a couple of weeks build-up um, or lead time or preparation time. You know, what what does that look like, the mechanics of it behind the scenes? You know, I suppose until you challenge, you don't know whether you're going to get the role yeah. or not. But once you get the roles, you it seemed from the outside in, you're just 
in at the deep end and, you know, boots and all. Yeah. And it's hitting the, you know, the road with um, the wheel spinning type of thing, as opposed to, you know, in a corporate world that you'd have your 90 day plan. You'd have your yeah, opportunities. Yeah, there was no 90 right? day plan. Uh, and, you know, that's, I look back on that with, um, uh, you know, some regret really is that, um, Certainly in, in the weeks prior, there was um, quiet conversations between those who supported me around you know, how tenable was Simon's leadership. Um, but it, it certainly wasn't a you know, well-choreographed, here's the plan for the next, you know, the 90-day plan. You know. You know, as it became clearer that change was inevitable, you know, more focus got put on, you know, how to manage the transition on the, you know, the first couple of days. Uh, but um, there was no plan in terms of the the 90-day. Uh, we're only 100 days out from the election. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I have to live with that. You know, I can't unwind the fact that I challenged uh, and um, uh, won and... You know, the wheels fell off my particular leadership. And then, of course, Judith took over and then, you yeah. know, on, on it went um, in terms of wheels and falling off. But um, it, was a, it was a process where you can see that we're under pressure. You have a small group of people who see the same things as you do and start thinking, well, if this keeps up, we're going to have to make some change here because we can't go to the election on 20-something percent. Mm. Um, and that's where it was heading. Uh, and so you begin those conversations, but they are, you know, they're relatively high level. And like I say, it was really only in the last um, two weeks where some genuine substance around what a transition could look like actually came together. Of course, the counter... Uh, you know, if you were interviewing others, they'll say, oh, you had it planned uh, for months, you know, they, you know and, and it was all lined up to, um, you know, to take, take them out. And, uh, and that isn't true. You know, it wasn't. Um, you know, in retrospect, um, had it been, um, we might have been more successful if, you know, you know, we had done the sort of pre-90-day plan. But this is the challenge of politics, right? Because, you know, we're looking, we're sort of looking back now through the, you know, dispassionately uh, three years afterwards. When you're in the middle of it and you're coming out of COVID uh, and for better or for worse, the leader that you've got is struggling to connect with people and there's a um, you know, a real challenge in terms of uh, our ability to be heard as a political party and our, and our policies uh, even reflected on. Uh, and you were the, par the party of government three years early and you still are a huge um, uh, caucus of, you know, 55, 56. Uh, and you're looking at polling going through the floor knowing that half of you don't have your jobs mm. if it keeps up at that rate. Um, you know, you've got, it's a very febrile situation, right? Uh, and so, you know, you, you have Simon trying to do the job 
uh, no doubt feeling like he's being constantly undermined by all this conversation about the fact that he's not good enough. Um, you know, I'm in that mix uh, saying, you know, if this keeps up, we're going to get absolutely smashed. What's the alternative? So these are very, so these are sort of, um, it's very dynamic uh, and it is completely not corporate in that context. So you don't say, right, okay, right, here's the plan. Um, we're going to have to um, execute the plan on this date and here's how we're going to run it and here's the people that we're going to have in all the jobs. As Nikki Kay said at the time after we made the change, it felt like you were uh, flying the plane and building it at the same time, yeah. uh, and which is you know, which is a fair assessment of what was going on. Um, and... You know, frankly, because of that lack of planning um, and probably some of the personalities involved and the f disappointment uh, from the outgoing leadership that, you know, frankly didn't make it easy either, um, not surprisingly, um, you, know, it was a, you know, it was a pretty messy time and, um, you know, you do the best you can in that environment, yeah. but, yeah. you know, it was pretty messy. The reason for my... You know, questioning really is, is is to look at it kind of objectively, and, and you know this is a workplace. You yeah. are at work, yeah. Um, and, and you know, I've obviously looked at a lot of interviews from that time and, and since. Um, and I, I just I tried to put I always tried to put myself in in the shoes of other people. It's it's impossible because I've I've not got the the experiences that you've got and the life that you've led. So, but I'll try my best to sort of put myself in that situation and imagine yep. how I would have felt under those circumstances. And, and it, it seemed like to me that it, it is chaotic. Um, it, it's quick change. There's no plan. Um, it's not something you've done before, albeit you've, you've, you've had dreams of doing. Um, that in itself is probably giving you an edge of excitement and and you know willingness to sort of go with the flow, um, go with it. But you know, timing wise as well, I, mean, I look at that and I think to myself, it was sort of four months before the election. <laughs> yes. And actually, when I looked at the way that the media were behaving with with you in particular, um, it it didn't. I don't think I don't think it was the same when Jacinda. Did what what she did six or eight weeks out, because there were the campaigning was going on. There was more for the media to focus on. It seemed like four months out, there was nothing else for the media to focus on. But but you, mm. and you became the subject, you know, of, of topic of conversation and and scrutiny. And I think all of that combined, it, from the outside looking in, looked like an enormous amount of pressure. Yeah. You know, so and then you know, you you you're doing your best, but those first few days look like hell, to be honest with you, from yeah. the outside looking in. Yeah, that's. I think that's. And so, is, is there some consequences of the way that things happen because because it's politics and it's different? Mm. It kind of has to happen that way. But is, you know, is it consequential that the, because of that and the timing and the people involved and what was going on, everything else? That all contributes. Did that all contribute to how you were feeling? Yeah, no doubt, absolutely. Um, you look, you can't, um, you can't dodge the fact that ultimately it was a call that um, uh, I thought change needed to happen, and um, you know, so did other people, and ultimately so did the National Party caucus. Mm. Uh, but the management of it. Uh, 
of that transition um, was, you know, tough and occurred in uh, the most extreme of circumstances, right? And you can run through your mind, could you have done it differently? Should you have done it differently? Um, what would happen if you didn't, if you held on and let uh, Simon take it through to the election? Uh, would he have got better than 25% that Judith got? Um, don't know. Um, at the time, it looked pretty perilous from our perspective. Uh, and, and so you make the judgments at the time that you think are the right for the party and the country. Um, but in terms of, you know, was it good management practice uh, or good organisational practice? You know, far from it. Uh, you know, arguably the complete opposite. But that's the difference between business and politics, right? Politics, it's hugely dynamic, organic. You're in it, um, you know, you're in it, right? You're in the trenches. Uh, and, you know, the public were rapidly turning off us. Uh, and we were saying, well, can we afford just to let this go or should we do a circuit breaker? That was effectively the judgment. Uh, and we decided to do the circuit breaker. Um, and you're quite right to say, yeah, but from the outside, it looked like you didn't have a clear plan to what you were going to do when you got in there. Uh, and um, that's, a fair, that's a fair criticism. You know, there were elements that were clear in our head, but the but there weren't there are other elements that weren't, you know. There's one of the criticisms that we get from that period was that we just tore up the you know policy program that had been set in place. Well, the policy program that was set in place was reflective of a pre COVID environment. So it all needed to be reassessed uh, anyway, uh, in very, very tight uh, time frame. So it was a it was a remarkably um, uh, unique uh, and high tension environment. But ultimately, you do what you think is the right thing, uh, and um, just in our case, it didn't it didn't work. Uh, and um, and I, you know, that sits with me for the rest of my life because I made a call. I felt it was the right call, uh, and didn't see the. Um, unraveling of my mental health uh, in the equation. Of course, I didn't. If I knew, if I knew that that was going to sit, be sitting around the corner, mm. I would have made a completely different uh, decision. But I didn't know, uh, and I uh, was highly um, uh, energized by the opportunity to actually be the leader of the national party and assist us through that change. And you know, the initial media reaction, the initial polling reaction, was very positive. You know. Single poll that I had in my time, we jumped eight points. You know, not not enough to win, but back into the high thirties, which was a great position to be in. But you know, uh, as you quite point uh, pointed out, my inability, uh, because of the challenges that I was, uh, you know, having in my head, to navigate that time and provide the sort of assured leadership that you need when you're sort of building a plane at forty thousand feet. Um, you know, just didn't materialise. And that's frustrating. Right? Yeah, For me, I, I look back on that and I think, you know, you've had leadership roles in Fonterra and Zespri yeah. and Apita uh, and also very stressful senior roles and I provided leadership and I provided assurance and I provided uh, guidance and judgement. But here I got caught in an environment where, um, you know, I was paralysed. Yeah. And when you are the leader and you're paralysed and you can't provide the, the necessary, uh, you know, judgement and perspective, 
um, then, you know, that's a hellish place for everybody else to try and operate. Mm. So, you know, we've got to own I, I think, to be fair to you, Todd, it wasn't a criticism of, of, of your leadership there. It was I was sort of looking at the circumstances under which you were required to demonstrate leadership. You, you said earlier when you talked about um, Fonterra and Zespri that you, you had great people around you. Mm. And, and you know, people who knew more than, than you did, and yeah. you know that that's that's what leadership's about. Yeah. So I, I was I was coming at it from the angle of well, who around you was helping and supporting that process? And my, my question, I've, I've got some questions about you know what you learned from that process. You said that it, it you've got to sit with that for rest rest of your life. It's it they're all lessons learned, right? Um, yep. So I'm interested in, in talking about that. But I, but before we go there, I, I don't want to forget to ask this, so I'm going to ask it now. You know, is, is what's the party learned? I, like I said, I you know, talk about it from a, an employment point of view. It's a workplace. And and once again, you know, New Zealand look to parliament, look to the, you know, the parties. Of whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, we're getting guidance and leadership from them. What's the what does the party learn from experiences like that, and what would they do differently next time? Is, has there been any conversation about that, or is it? Yeah, just, I we, think uh, you know we had a review of the twenty twenty election, um, you know, and which was wide ranging, uh, and looked at it both uh, through the lens of what caucus could have done differently, uh, and uh, which is the MPs, uh, and what the party could have done differently. And um, I think you can see, uh, particularly in the last uh, year and a half under Chris Luxon's leadership, that those lessons are being learned. You know, that people talk about discipline um, and it is a critical part of, um, you know, political success Mm. is the ability to hang together, you know, Mm. and keep together even when times are tough. And um, I think clearly um, that term between 2017 and 2020, um, there were many examples of us not showing that discipline. And um, it's in place now. Uh, I think the way that the transition from Judith to Chris was managed reflected... um, a maturity that didn't occur when Simon and I were in that um, space uh, and even arguably the transition from Bill to um, uh, the competition and then Simon winning. Uh, So I think we have learnt those lessons. And the funny thing about it all, um, though, Steve, is that these are lessons that get learned and then unlearned in the cycle of politics because... You know, we went through it all post the uh, bulgy years uh, in the early 2000s when we went Shipley, uh, English, Rash, uh, and then back to to Key. Uh, And those dynamics of, um, uh, you know, internal pressure, party dissatisfied about where we're tracking and the cut-through that we've got... um, those who support the party having that similar view, the internal pressures um, and personalities and um, groups of people, you know, positioning for and against individuals, uh, all of that 
manifested through the early 2000s. We then uh, came together under John Key and Bill English and had nine years of success, and we saw Labor go through exactly the same process in opposition, um, you know, euph euphemistically tearing each other's eyes out, right, and tut-tutting them from the side, saying, well, we, we will never do that because we've learnt from our experiences uh, previously. But, you know, there we were uh, in opposition and, um, you know, succumbing to the same sort of pressures and behaviour. And I think that sort of talks to um, the sort of structural reality of, you know, you asked before about why you go into politics and the power, you know, to the drivers of it. When you're in government, you are in charge, right? And so therefore opposition, particularly extended opposition, period, is hugely demoralising because all you do is critique uh, and um, hold a view at what they could be doing different. But at a level, it's just noise because you don't have the levers of power. And so there becomes a huge focus on who the right people need to be at number one, two, and three, and who, you know, to actually get yourself back there. Because that's the number one objective, is you've got to get back uh, to sitting around that table. And so that's why you have these um, hugely challenging periods for political parties when they're in opposition, you know. It's gone on always. Uh, when you're in opposition, after a period of government, it's normally very tumultuous until you eventually land on the right individual mm. or team to get yourself back in the game. Uh, same thing has ha happened to us, and then we landed on the right uh, leadership team with Chris and Nicola. Uh, and now, you know, we're in a very different position. So um, lessons do get learned. Uh, but then the immediacy of that, um, those uh, the consequences of not following the lessons gets lost normally during a period of government. And so then when you tip back into um, uh, opposition, you find yourself back in the you know back in the wilderness uh, and you revert to type. Yeah, so so you I, I don't I don't want to sort of go too, you know too deep into that period of time I, I do want to touch on it it'd be remiss for me not to but it's been well documented yeah but you know at, at what point I, I want to tap into if I can at what point you realized you know shit actually this is not what I or it's harder than I thought it was going to be and or I'm not going to be able to do this that that kind of moment of realization yeah. and how that felt given the context of what we've talked about today how much you wanted that kind of leadership role and, you know, to be, you know, president stroke prime minister. Yeah. You know, that must have been tough to have that kind of realisation happening for you. I oh, look uh, dreadful, but um, the way you frame that up sounds like a sort of, um, you know, a rational, dispassionate assessment of, oh, this, this, this job's a bit more than I expected. I'm going to have to step away. Uh, and of course, it wasn't like that at all. It was horror of a of a complete uh, mental health breakdown, right? And and so it was about getting through the day, as opposed to um, uh, reflecting on legacy uh, or uh, regret that um, I couldn't do the job that I had uh, always wanted. Uh, that came later, 
But at the time, uh, when you're in the middle of the you know, horror of it all falling apart in your head, um, uh, frankly, you just, you're just trying to get through each day. Like, I was so struck by that uh, documentary that Robin Malcolm did, and I, got, you know, I was asked to participate in that about anxiety, uh, because they showed footage of me doing one of my last press statements, press conferences, and I looked appalling, absolutely appalling. And I had never seen, I'd never seen any footage of when I was the leader, because once you're the leader, it's so, um, as every former leader knows, um, it's non-stop, right? It just goes, you know, 18 hours a day. And so you don't have time to sit and reass- look at how your media performances are gone, because it's just your next one's there, mm. and then the next one. So you're just going non-stop, right? And so I'd never seen what I looked like. And then I saw it and uh, on that documentary, and I was, I was... You know, I was pretty shocked actually um, around you know the physical deterioration that was that was matching the mental deterioration. Um, but look, I, I at the time it was so acute uh, and so debilitating uh, that I wasn't sitting there going, "Oh, if I step aside, this is me." Mm. I mean, I the the pain was so overwhelming. And that's the other thing that I, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this before. I'd had these challenges at Zespri and challenges at Fonterra, big challenges in terms of botulism, some false botulism scares. Um, and at worst, I'd had a bit of disturbed sleep. Full stop. Never had it. Never had to know what an anxiety attack was. Never experienced one in my life before. Uh, and they were just basically non-stop. And what I had not, you know, looking back, I. I had no understanding about the pain of them, like the physical pain of mental health is something that I um, you never forget, um, and uh, it's pretty brutal. Well, it's more than brutal, mm. and I just at the end of the at the end of it, I just simply wanted the pain to stop. It wasn't. This is the end of my career. This is, you know. Uh, shame on my family or anything like that, you know, that um, it was just can the pain stop? Uh, and, um, you know, I was essentially given the permission to walk away from the fire and that's what it felt like. Uh, and then, of course, uh, just bone-deep fatigue and you slept and slept and slept and slowly um, recover. Uh, and that's a journey, right? That's that's the other thing with this is, you know, when you when you get to that point um, and you walk away, it's not like flicking a switch. You don't you don't sort of wake up the next morning and say, "Oh, that's good, I'm fine now." Um, you know, it it is a profound experience, and so you, in my case, you need to do some you know deep. Uh, reflection of work to you know rebuild your resilience from that, and that's a work in progress from my perspective. Um, but what I have decided to do is be open about it mm. because, mm. and you know, Michelle, to her credit, um, when we were talking about it, she said, "Well, pretty much everyone knows what's happened. They can sort of see mm-hmm. that you've fallen over here, mm. and so let's just, you know, we don't, you know, you don't hunt the 
story. But if people ask you, just say this is what it's like. And, you know, I think in a small way that's been useful. Do you find it hard to articulate exactly how it felt and how it came about? Uh, the, the reason I ask is I've got a daughter who, who you know, at a young age suffered from anxiety and I thought I understood what anxiety was. I had no idea until I suffered from it myself. Oh. But I, f I found it very hard to kind of describe that to other people, what that felt like and, and what, what triggered it or what led to it. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, when you talk about building resilience, trying to understand how things come about helps you spot the kind of signs or symptoms that might be leading towards that. But it's, it's, do you find it hard to put your finger on that? Or um, I don't find it hard to describe what it felt like. Um, and I don't and I do have the capacity to... Um, uh, identify the familiar early signs uh, now. Um, so I guess the, the challenge is working out, for me the big challenge, is so now what? You know, um, I had rebuilt myself quite well and... Chris had given me agriculture and climate change, front bench, uh, and I think we will probably win. It'll be a scrap, but I think we'll probably win. And I couldn't do it because I just could, in my deep gut, felt that I just didn't have the capacity and energy to do 100 and something hours a week. Um, and I have found myself increasingly frustrated with some of the more uh, toxic comments that get directed to you as an MP, not about my performance, but about politics generally. You know, you're out and about and people come up and let rip about, you know, their views on the world. And historically, even if I disagreed with people, I would get energy from that. And I am, you know, increasingly frustrated uh, by that. Uh, and so you look at the way politics is heading. I'm a collaborative politician, I think, rather than a combative one. Um, my own resilience. And I thought, you know what? I think it's time to just step aside and let someone else have a go at this. Because I don't want to be back in that position. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure that I wouldn't be. Uh, and so because I have that familiarity of that, you know, because I've walked in that journey and in that fire, uh, I do have a sense of what that feels like when it starts again. And, um, you know, I just don't want to go back there. And, and so are you, are you, what you're saying there, Todd, is that you feel that if you stayed on, you had the front bench role, that that would potentially happen. those the kind of work ethic that you need, the hours, the time yeah. away from home, all of that kind of stuff could yeah. lead to another I think it could have, yeah. Uh, and then when you overlay the sort of, um, my sort of sense of where politics is heading and my dislike of that and sort of 
increasing frustration in terms of interactions with people who hold those views, I'm thinking this is not a particularly healthy combination. And I think you've got to be all in. Now, you could, I could have stayed on as the MP for Bay of Plenty and not sat on a front bench, uh, but I feel that you're, you're actually not doing the job served. You know, I think if you've reached that point um, where the, you, know, you are finding um, elements of the job frustrating, uh, then I think just staying around to experience you know, the good stuff and just sort of you know, middling along I don't think that's right for the Bay of Plenty uh, or a community like this. You know, this is a big city, right? It needs a senior minister sitting around the table. And if it's not going to be me, then I need to make way for somebody else who in time can do that. Uh, and that's important. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it, it, it's, it's been quite uh, a journey, as I'm sure it has for you, right? Once, once you have experienced it, 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 it does change your life perspective around, you know, what's important to you and how to manage yourself through, uh, um, you know, to avoid it happening again. Yeah. That's, that was what I was going to ask next, actually, was what, you know, what, you know, it's it's obviously something you would never choose to, to, to happen or go through, but, you know, as we've discussed, these things do happen, right? Um and you know you can. I listened to your kind of language earlier on. You've got to. I've got. That's got to. I've got to sit with that for the rest of my life. But you stepped up and you gave it a go. Oh. Um, you showed le leadership in stepping up. Oh. You showed leadership in stepping down. Oh. Um, there's value in that period of of, of your life um, that that will stay with you for the rest of your life. Oh. You. you you might have the, the naysayers and the negative side of things that you yeah. know, but you know what what can you take from a positive point of view? What what positives can you take out of that period that have shaped who you are now? And maybe from a leadership point of view, because as you, we started off this conversation talking about leaderships everywhere. It's we can demonstrate in leadership in all aspects of life. What what have you learned that you you know, shaped you differently um, or shaped you as a leader differently? Uh, I think it's learning um, and it's gratitude, right? So when I referenced before um, elements of the transition between Simon as a leader to me as a leader and having to live with that, um, what I uh, was trying to articulate is the fact that you own what you did. Right? You own the experience and it's important not to try and have a revisionist view mm. that somehow suggests that um, you, know, you were not a contributor to what was a pretty tough period in the National Party's history. I was. Um, but it is important that it doesn't sit with you in a sense of a negative regret. Um, do I regret the fact that I had mental health uh, issues? Of course I do. Um, uh, you know, I'm, who wouldn't not want to have gone through the fire? But the thing is that I did. Uh, and so the, for me, the way um, you know, I intend to live the rest of my life uh, is, to be, is to have gratitude about the fact that, um, you know, I have fantastic 
uh, loving family uh, and friends. And even though it was a hideous experience, I know that that has had a positive impact on other people um, because the very media that I was attacking before, social media, allows an intimacy with individuals that um, and connectedness that just doesn't exist normally, right? So I have hundreds of messages on my uh, phone from people who I don't know who just got online and messaged me with thanks about being so open and then telling me their own story. Hundreds and hundreds of them. I don't know these people. Most of them would preface with, I, I vote Labour, but... Da, 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 da. Mm. Uh, and so you 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 realise actually, um, you know, I have been through the fire, but um, there's a lot to be thankful for, and it has changed me as a person. I think I am more empathetic. I always thought I was empathetic, but it's like anything, right? You don't truly understand unless you've lived it. Uh, it's not a criticism. It's just mm. um, now when you meet people that have had challenges in terms of and are having challenges in terms of mental health there's a relatability and an understanding and a connection that otherwise wouldn't have been there and that's a powerful thing to have that be able to have those connections with people and in a small way uh, maybe you know assist in being someone that they feel that they can talk to about so um, it's absolutely changed my life and um, bizarrely in a good way uh, and you know you're talking legacy right um, you know it's not for me to define it but I suspect um, it'll be more related to this experience than any other thing that I did in the nine years that I was there um, and that's pretty powerful Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. I, what do you think you might do with it? <laughs> you know, I mean, this yeah. is probably the question that's, uh, that a lot of people have got you know, about what's next for, for Todd. Um, you know, you, you're, still, you're still a young bloke. You've got right. A, you've that's got a, great. That's what I want to hear. You've got a lot of experience yeah. that you can draw on. Um, yeah. What do you think you might like to do with it? I mean, have you got any thoughts or ideas about what's, what the future holds? No, I don't. Uh, and uh, most when I tell people that, they think, oh, yeah, oh, come on, you've surely got some big job lined up in the corner. I don't, actually. Um, I am having a period of reflection as to, to what next. It's, it's a big transition for me, right, because I don't have a North Star anymore. Mm. The North Star was this, uh, and I'm choosing to step away from this. So what is next? What does next look like? Uh, and I think, I, for me, I have to... Um, sort of go back to the elements of sort of what gives my li what has given my life purpose and meaning and it is um, community and connection uh, and service uh, and agriculture and exports um, and so what in that what in that space could emerge um, and um, I would like to continue to support um, uh, you know, mental health conversations more broadly. Um, but I'm conscious of the fact that I am just one of 
hundreds of thousands. Yes, someone who was pretty public, uh, but um, you know, we're lots of us are going through this journey, and so if there is a way to assist in that context, then I'm open to it. Uh, but it's I suspect it's more likely to be in the space of what we're doing here, is that honest conversations with people that ask, as opposed to any sort of determined or deliberate um, role. Mm. Um, but you know we'll see, mm. um, and. Um, I love the city, I love the community, I want to stay a part of it. Uh, I don't see myself, you know, disappearing and living somewhere else for the rest of my life. But you do want a, a role of, you do, you do, everyone wants meaning, right? They want purpose, they want a sense of what they're doing uh, is, is valuable, is valued and is valuable. And, you know, I, I will now um, reflect on what best that could look like. Mm. Your North Star politics. Is there a big enough difference between national politics and local politics that you might consider? I'm just conscious of the fact that, you know, hopefully Tarong is going to have a council again next year. And yeah, hopefully. We'll, uh, we'll need yeah. a mayor. Is that something that you would consider or is, is politics kind of off the table? Now? I think it's off the table. You know, I, um, it, it's absolutely not something that I would consider next year. Categorically, um, I mean, you never say never, uh, but um, in some ways, um, I think I would find um, putting aside the fact that, from a sort of energy perspective, I think you know politics has it's run its course. I also think local government is particularly challenging um, as a um, political career choice. Because unlike central government, when you do have power, when your ship comes in, so to speak, and you're in government for a period of time, um, and local government every day is, you know, an arm wrestle with 11 others to try and get a consistent view as to how to deal with a $4 billion plus uh, balance sheet. Um, and our city for the last 30 years, I think, uh, has challenged, has been challenged to get that balance right. Okay, and I and I don't, any in any way, um, dismiss those who have contributed huge amount of their time and hours and life in that space, but it's very difficult. And now we find ourselves a city of what one hundred and seventy thousand people, and frankly, up against it because when you skip a generation in infrastructure and investment, it is very, very difficult to catch up again um, because you're going to just, you know, naturally lean on the current ratepayers to, to, you know, to front more than otherwise would be the case. Mm. And that's a very difficult ask. Mm. And then you're one of 12 or one of 10, whatever the number is. Mm. Um, it's, it's, that's pretty difficult, mm. you know. And you look, the commissioners have had success um, you know, not universally supported, but they've had success because it's four of them appointed to get in a room, agree it, and get on with it. Well, that's, you know, it's not democracy, uh, but it's, um, you know, an efficient organisational design if you want to get stuff done. Um, democracy is very different. Uh, and so you have 10, 12 people with different views and perspectives and experiences and, frankly, capability uh, in charge of, you know, four billion. 
So um, not for me, uh, certainly not in the short term. Well, whatever you decide to do, wish you all the very best uh, with Thanks that, with the, with the taking time out and reflection and uh, whatever comes next for you. Wish you all the best for that. I'd like to thank you so much for, again, taking time out of your busy schedule and spending time with us today um, to tell us a bit about your, your whole story, not just the bit that <laughs> people have focused on in recent well known, times. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the whole story is fascinating and, and what, what drove you to get into politics, I think, is... There's some there's some great lessons there for young people listening who, who want you know not necessarily about politics but whatever it is having a, a bit of a focus and deciding what you want to do and then you know that serendipitous yes. kind of stuff that uh, yeah. I found interesting because I've, I've experienced that myself um, w whether it's serendipity or whether it's you putting stuff out there and seeing things that you wouldn't see if you weren't of, of that mindset I'm not yeah. sure but or you know, both. Oh, very both, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's it's important for people to have a little bit of a focus around what they would like, and and then things would start to fall in place. And so, if, you know, that part of your story I found fascinating. So, thank you for sharing all of it. Um, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for the opportunity. Cheers. All the very best. Thanks, mate. As you'll hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing from our guests who've been living a life that is a story worth retelling. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and summarise them here. I'm grateful for Todd sharing his experience with mental health issues. It's important for public figures to be willing to open up about such matters because clearly this creates opportunities for those of us who are less well-known to also engage in such topics. Todd gave a good account of that in this interview, as he has done in other, on other occasions, and he said he'll continue to do so. I've given a lot of thought to this particular story, and I'm considering creating a separate publication on those thoughts, so I won't go over Todd's mental health story here again, as there are other gems of wisdom worth sharing from the conversation. I love the part of Todd's story where he spoke about serendipity, the occurrence and development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way. I'm sure that you will have experienced this too, when things seem to just happen for some reason, but you can't explain how or why. In Todd's story, he described how things fell into place for him with regard to getting into politics. After reading about American presidents as a child, he wrote a story about himself becoming the president, and that was the start of it. And then there were many other seemingly unfathomable events that led to him as a young man working closely with the Prime Minister for three years. Of course, ultimately, events would take Todd into politics as an MP, and then he became leader of the opposition, which could have resulted in him being the Prime Minister himself. What a fantastic story that would have been. This story resonated with me because I've had similar experiences of serendipity myself on a number of occasions, and coincidentally, when I was considering getting into politics many years ago. But what is it? Maybe it's something mystical, universe aligning things, or maybe it's less complex than that, but maybe equally mystical. I personally believe that we create serendipitous events ourselves. When we put our minds to something and we want it badly enough, we start to see opportunities in front of us that maybe we wouldn't have seen if we weren't in that state of mind. This may be taking 
a different take on confirmation bias. It helps us seize things that we've got an interest in. Our senses are working full time all the time. So imagine how many things that we see, but we do not observe, to quote Sherlock Holmes. It's a bit like when we're buying a new car, you can decide you maybe want a Mini Cooper and suddenly now you see Mini Coopers all over the place. They were all there before, we just didn't register them because like so many things we see, they're not that important to us. So we take little notice. In my situation, I'd never met a politician before. And once I decided that was of interest to me, they were everywhere. So what can we learn from this part of Todd's story? Well, I think two things. One is that, very simply, we need to know what it is that's important to us, what we want to focus on and do so consciously. Because then we give ourselves the best chance of observing the things that could benefit us. If we aren't conscious of it, who knows what we will miss. The second is building on the first. And that is to make sure that when we see or observe these opportunities, we must grab them and do something. My favourite interpretation of luck is preparation meeting opportunity. We must know what we are wanting and be prepared for it, then see the opportunity and take it. Some call it luck and some call it serendipity. Another point that Todd raised that resonated with me, as I'd been told to do the same when I was about 18, wanting to join the police force, was to go get some real life experience. Todd didn't need advising of this, he knew it himself, that the best way he could serve the needs of his future constituents was by obtaining worldly experience. He feels that today there are too many young politicians who haven't experienced much life outside of the political realm. And this makes sense to me. I think it's wisdom in action. We don't actually realise when we are young how limited our understanding of the world is. I can remember being young, a young man myself, thinking I knew all that there was to know, but not understanding why others thought less of me. I know why now, and that's because I'm old. It's not that young people aren't intelligent and can't achieve. Far from it, of course they can. But how can we expect to make the best decisions, such as in politics, on behalf of so many others with limited knowledge about how things work in the real world? Todd talked about leadership having experienced many leadership roles in his career. Working with leaders in a coaching and education capacity, I liked what he had to say about this. He's pleased that the narrative around leadership is changing from the leader knows best to I need great people around me who know more than I do. Todd's worked for the likes of Zespri and Fonterra, two of New Zealand's leading organizations. He certainly experienced the opportunity to operate that way as a leader. It would have been interesting to have seen how Todd's leadership style played out in politics, had he remained leader of the National Party for some time. When we talked about politics, Todd said that he had concerns over where things are heading. And that reflects, I think, the feelings of so many people, many that I've spoken with or I've heard speaking on the matter, and myself included. Todd said that New Zealand is a vastly different place to what it was 15 years ago, and he's worried about where that's leading us. He said, we seem to be becoming more strongly partisan and that people feel like if you don't vote for the same party as me, I can't have you around for dinner. That doesn't feel like things are getting better to me. Feels like we're less than united. Feels like we're getting worse. 
Some will argue that we need to get worse before it gets better, but what happens if they're wrong and we're heading down a path of no return? I've been fortunate enough to have interviewed a few politicians on Life's Work podcast and all of them same kind of the same things, that they're worried about how people are behaving towards them and that the level of hatred in society is concerning. I spoke with Todd about this and he felt that politicians and mainstream media were playing a significant role in this, that they were using social media to do it. He said that the behavior towards people like Jacinda Ardern was appalling. Now, this isn't a lecture by me on the freedom of speech. I'm not suggesting that we stop expressing views and opinions about stuff, but I think it's how we're doing it that matters. If politicians can use social media to say what they like, how they like, then surely they're leading the way as far as the general public is concerned. It's causing some, like Todd, to rethink their careers. Why subject yourself and your families to the kind of, that kind of behavior when you can go do something else? As a general public, we need to be mindful of the outcomes we'll experience down the line, the cause and effect of this. We need decent, upstanding members of society to represent us at all levels, um, including at the parliamentary level. But if good people feel that they're left with no alternative but to step down due to the poor behaviour of others, what state will our parliament be in and what state will our society be in in the not-too-distant future? Hopefully you've been able to take many insights from this interview that you can apply to your own life, work and legacy. Use it, share it. As I always say, sharing is like teaching and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which is absolutely necessary if we are to enhance our own life's work. I hope you're happy, safe and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, a podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.